Ms. Jolene Hyde, who is an intermediate school administrator, grew up in South Africa during the era of apartheid, which extended from 1948 until it was dismantled in the early 1990s. Apartheid formalized the policies of the South African National Party and constituted a gross human rights abuse that bears many similarities to slavery. Under apartheid, the government forced three and a half million black South Africans from their land and relegated them to one of 10 designated homelands based on their native ethnic group. Many displaced South Africans were forced to become migrant laborers. The government claimed that this system of racial compartmentalization allowed each community to foster their unique cultures separately, though non-whites were denied even the most basic human rights. The apartheid legislation banished those who didn't fit into a rigid category into a racial twilight zone in which individuals not classified as white, black, or Asian were clumped together as colored. This vaguely labeled conglomerate encompassed a diversity of ethnicities, including those of Indian or mixed racial heritage. Ostracized by whites and estranged from blacks, colored people navigated their own set of obstacles. Though they certainly faced discrimination, colored individuals were allowed to pursue higher education and live in any part of the country. In contrast, black South Africans could only leave their homelands if they carried a pass pursuant to the notorious pass laws. Ms. Hyde is a biracial person of Indian and Caucasian heritage who identifies as a person of color. This conversation with Ms. Hyde provides some anecdotal insights into the maze of marginalization she navigated as a female of color during the apartheid. Ms. Hyde reflected on the interplay between her gender and ethnic identities in the context of such an oppressive racist and patriarchal regime. Touching on the nuances between the demoralizing nature of segregation versus the empowering potential of affinity groups, Ms. Hyde brings her experiences in South Africa into a current day local context. She also described the ways the labels surrounding her racial identity have shifted. By rearranging words once symbolic of disparagement and racism, our society now uses lexicon that honors her diverse heritage. She shares her hopes for future generations and her wisdom for those hoping to avoid a repeat of an unfathomable past. So my name is Jolene Hyde. My maiden name is Jolene Morris. And um, I grew up in predominantly the, the Eastern Cape. Um, there was there's nine provinces in, in South Africa and um, I grew up in an area which was considered during the apartheid regime a homeland. Um, my um, mom's family came from Cape Town um, and my dad's family came from the Eastern Cape and that's why we decided to move or live there. Um, during this time, I was classified as colored and um, half my family are, you know, darker skin tone with dark hair. And then from my mother's side, um, they are more fairer skin, blonde hair, blue eyes. Um, and they, some of those family members were classified as white. Um, during that time, um, you had to be um, placed in a in a racial category um, that identified you in terms of where you lived and where you were allowed to um, 
work and reside and study, etc. Um, it there was also limitations in terms of like public transportation. If you were um, classified as white, you got to sit in um, the front portion of the trains. If you were black or colored or Indian or other the other rac uh, racial ethnicities, you got to sit in the more compact, less graded, you know, um, seating areas. Um, because of uh, being in what they considered a homeland, um, we were self-sustaining. We had our own government, own police force, um, and not under the umbrella of the um, apartheid regime, so to speak. So there were pros and cons to that. Um, the pros were that we could interact with whomever we wanted to without discrimination or without bias or without... Um, kind of um, the stigma of, you know, you can only associate with the people that look like you. Um, and so there was rewards with that because there was no none of that um, bringing us up with um, having the preconceived notion that a white person is out to get you mm -hmm. and they are all evil and mean and so forth. Um, but the cons with that was um, my father was a building contractor and a lot of the, um, you know, work was contracted out on the outskirts of these homelands. So um, there was a lot of underhand negotiations, secretive ways of him, him trying to um, access work. Um, so that also put a lot of strain on us financially um, in that we didn't have easy access to a lot of um, you know just things material things um, you know food um, uh, so that at times that could be really really hard and really tough on our family um, the other thing that was really tough is trying to see members of our family that were not in the area and to travel between the provinces you had to go through border control um, everybody had to have a passport and that had your identification of who you what you classified as um, one of the ways in which the government kept non-white people down was um, not making it as easily accessible in order to obtain those documents there was always some reason of why you you didn't qualify and so forth um, because it wasn't once you had that you you had some form of um, uh, a leg up in terms of you can find work um, and um, Wait, have the, the benefit of being able to nav navigate throughout the, the area. Um, one situation that comes to mind is my youngest brother was born and he we were wanting to travel to visit family um, and we were denied to get a passport for him and we knew we needed to go and see the family. I think it was over a, a Christmas vacation. Um, so we literally smuggled him in the car um, and he laid under our feet and we put a blanket over wow. um, to sneak him in. Um, 
The scary part was usually you would just drive through and you'd hand out your passports and it's kind of like you get stamped and you, they tell you to proceed. They told us to get out of the car um, and our hearts were beating because we knew if if he gets seen, we are going to be in big trouble. We're going to end up probably in jail. Um, and I remember reaching my hand and like just tapping him and saying, shh. And then we got out. Um, but we had to go into the building and so therefore leave him in the car by himself as a two-year-old boy, yeah. um, which was really well, pretty scary. And, um, um, you know, it, it put us in a in an awkward position where you actually had to lie and be untruthful, you mm-hmm. know, um, in order to... Get, achieve or gain something in life um there was a lot of that kind of like um untruths you know yeah um so that was one of the stories the other story that comes really to my mind that made an indelible um, impact on my life was when i graduated from high school i wanted to be a doctor and that was still in in the middle of apartheid um but I was not allowed to because I was a woman and I was considered classified as colored and told the extent of what I could do was probably secretarial course. Yeah. Um, now, one of the things my parents never allowed us to um, do was to take um, something like that where we were hindered or segregated or um, undermined and take that as a crutch. But rather, how do you navigate through life when you are f- hit against a brick wall? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you take that as a defeatist attitude or do you dust yourself off and shake yourself off and say, okay, what, what can I do with what I'm dealt, the cards I'm dealt? And, you know, I think sometimes one's path you have a predetermined idea of what it is going to be, but then sometimes things happen and it totally changes the trajectory of your life. Um, and if I think about it, if my path was not where I am today, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to meet Mr. Hyde, to move to the United States, be in education, get to talk to you. Um, just about, you know, the experience of um, that can be negatively impact your life, how that can become a positive, yeah, and how you can, um, through your own experiences, make a positive impact in someone else's life and, and encourage somebody else, you know, by not um, giving up, you know, persevere yeah. and be resilient and. Um, take every opportunity that is given to you and hold on to it with both hands because being in a country like this, they, it, it, you are awarded with so many gifts that I think sometimes we take for granted. Um, and there are still people in this world today that don't have those opportunities because of the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that's fascinating to kind of hear how you mentally frame um, your circumstances and the way that you've grown up because, you know, people could reframe it in a different way to say that, you know, it's been like a 
more of a burden to them, but you've used it as a, as a way to sort of overcome it and use it as a strength. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of wondering, like, when you were growing up as a child, how did you perceive this segregation? Like, did it seem normal because you were just accustomed to it or were you always like, this is wrong? Um, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you see political activists and you see young school children your age, like June 16th marks a, a profound time in, in, in our youth in South Africa because that was the, the Soweto um, uprising against um, just the education system. We were mandated to um, learn in our minds, the non-white people, non-white students, to learn what we felt was the oppressor's language, Afrikaans. And we felt if that is mandated, why can't we learn the other um, languages? There's 11 official languages in South Africa. And um, that was to us wrong. If we call ourselves South Africans, then we should know each and every language. It shouldn't just be um, marginalized in, in a category that these are the ones that we have to learn and that gets, you know, um, decreed that that's what we have to learn in, in, in school. And that's why there was the Soweto uprising. And then that is, you know, um, there's a picture um, of one of the students holding one of his uh, classmates in his hand because the police shot at the student body and yet it was a peaceful march and that made international news and that's what um, rallied um, the UN to intervene and say okay we need to do something about this this is wrong um, because you know South African had so many sanctions against them and um, it wasn't a uh, a country that was looked at by the world as um, worth saving until they saw the youth being um, impacted that way. Yeah, and when you were growing up in school, did your teachers um, ever talk about, you know, like, I guess maybe discuss like how the government justified this segregation or discussed um, your opinions about whether it was right and wrong when you were younger or was it just not discussed? It was illegal to talk about anything okay. against, um, even though we were in um, in the homeland, still in our education system. Um, you you know, people would get wind of discussions, and you know, there is there was still a far-reaching arm, even though we had our own government and we had our own police force. Um, where it could make a, a detrimental impact on our lives. So those kinds of discussions happened in secret, you know, not in out in the open in public. Um, it happened, you know, in family homes and so forth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, um, like in the video that you made, you mentioned how um, you were classified as a colored person and mm -hmm. you identify as a colored person. And um, do you prefer the term colored as opposed to like person of color or any other term that might be used? So I now I, I consider myself a person of color. Um, in that time, those times, um, 
being classified as colored was all we knew. Um, but now through changes in, in history and DEI work, um, being classified as a person of color because I'm not just one type of um, racial group. Mm-hmm. I have many layers to my um, ancestry. And so I can't just say I'm colored because what does that mean exactly? Yeah. You know? And um, what were some of, I guess, the intersections between um, what you faced as a woman and a person of color um, in South Africa? Did those two things kind of work against you or, you know, how did those two things kind of come into play with each other? Um, A woman's role in, in South Africa during that time it was considered you were the bearer of children and the homekeeper. And um, women did not have the brain power to take office, to be in um, medicine and, you know, law or even teaching. Um, uh, so those opportunities weren't really readily available to people of of color, um, and you know, I I count myself as still very fortunate in comparison to the people that were in further impoverished areas that lived in um, metal housing with no running water, no electricity. Their classrooms were made of, um, you know, cement flooring with, you know, and that's how they learned on that floor. Whereas I still had a a, a better um, um, opportunity than that. At least I got to go into a classroom where I could sit at a chair and a desk. Um, And so, um, you know, I feel that there were very there was layers of opportunity. Um, it just depended on what your background was. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I still had a, um, a better lifestyle than the ones that came from um, the top. Ta- what they cl- classified as the townships. Um, But yeah, you know, even after our first democratic elections in 1994, change didn't happen immediately. And and that's, it was unrealistic for people to expect it to happen overnight because apartheid started in 1948 and 1994 was our first democratic election. That doesn't just change and change to, to, to change people's mindset when it's ingrained in you to hate a person that is black or a different shade than you or a different economic status from you or social environment from you, it's it's unrealistic to expect it to happen overnight. Um, And so that that made it really hard. And especially when you value or you view women in one status that is less than you as a man, to, to suddenly have that mind shift is is it takes a while to do that yeah and it it almost begins I feel in the home you know how you raise your children is the adults that they become and so on and you know I, I think everything begins in at home how you educate your children to view other people 
right? And it kind of accumulates across the generations. Exactly. Um, and then when you, I, so I assume that you've been back to South Africa, you know, since you came to the United States. Um, what changes have you seen there since um, the apartheid ended? I definitely see, you know, people that look like me um, in um, in spaces of power, um, making changes. Now, sometimes also, it can be a good or a bad thing when people that are have never had the power are suddenly in power. They can take that advantage of that, and then there becomes the inset of temptation and greed. Um, but I've definitely seen. Uh, a trajectory in opportunities for non-white people um, and you know one of the main things that I think brought about that change was the affirmative action cha- uh, um, policy that was installed soon after the 94 election and that started to open up doors and um, for people you know that didn't have those opportunities before um, running water where there was none um, health care um, you know uh, education is a huge for for people um, what about like day-to-day interactions between uh, people of color and white people do you still see that like kind of prejudice there or is it pretty much I think it depends on the area that you are Ariel um, there are still parts of South Africa that um, predominantly are white Afrikaans speaking people that hate any person that is not that does not look like them and there are specific areas in South Africa that are still like that today um, and you know like they are in the United States you know there are areas that they don't want any non-white people in their spaces yeah um, and you know that is unfortunate because I think um, it doesn't matter uh, what color skin color you have um, we are all human beings and we all have the same feelings and I think if I if I reflect on Nelson Mandela's um, legacy and his example um, it was until you forgiveness is a powerful weapon and until you forgive you can't move forward and I think also fear is is a is a driving vehicle um, when you have fear in your heart to to somebody that doesn't look like you, um, it's hard um, to try and kind of like extend a hand of graciousness to somebody because, you know, that, that fear limits you. It puts up that wall immediately because you're not trying taking the time to get to know your neighbor because they look different to you. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where... As a as a human race is the biggest deterrent, um, and until we can forgive because of our ancestors or the other adults in our you know prior life um, who made bad decisions that have now caused a ripple effect on generations down the line, um, that. I think um, is a big thing Um, and I think truth and reconciliation in South Africa had a big huge part in that because there was that platform there was that opportunity to face your oppressor and to really hold them accountable for their action and 
what it, how it directly impacted your life or the people that died at the hand of that, uh, you know, oppressor. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there was healing in that. There was, it was a powerful moment where our whole country acknowledged that that needs to happen, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then finally, um, just tying it back to Potomac School, there's been a lot of discussion in the upper school about like affinity groups and um, different spaces for um, people to get with people that they identify with, whether it be by the color of their skin or their religion or their gender, and kind of have this space with just those people to talk about, you know, hopes and problems and dreams specific to that group. Um, And I'm kind of just curious, um, what's your opinion on, um, you know, maybe like spaces for just where only people of color are allowed there? Is that something that you know, looks promising to you, or does that kind of remind you of, you know, what you came from and which it didn't work? I think it's important to have those spaces, but I also think it's important to open it up to people that don't look like you, because um, how are you supposed to move the world forward or educate people if you're not sharing your story and you and your true feelings and and I think it needs to be in an, a, an, a space that makes you feel comfortable enough to want to go um, and um, I think the more we talk about it and it shouldn't just be on specific days of oh you know it's um, Martin Luther King day and now we have to talk about it I think it needs to be an everyday discussion and I think it shouldn't be um, something that we feel uncomfortable about. I think it should be part of our fabric. Um, it should, you know, be a casual discussion like, hi, Ariel, you know, how are you doing today? You know, what was your day like? What is your fears? You know, it, uh, it almost build a kind of like a friendship, you know, um, in a, and, and I think the more casual it is, the less threatening it is. But if it's like, constantly, you know, um, just one type of people gathering because they look like a certain way. Um, That is important, but I think it needs to be a bigger um, area, bigger platform, as I said. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to add to the interview? No, I just think, you know, I I mean, if I look at what's going on here, in the United States, I, I, it can be very scary because hate, hate drives a lot of emotion, and um, as I said, it, it's got a lot to do with fear. And I think people are afraid that if we give black people, Asian people, opportunities, that they are going to. T- take over the world but that's not so I think you 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 have to give everybody an equal playing field um, and if they are, have the ability to 
been positions of power or jobs or whatever, then so be it, you know. Um, but to deny a human being based on the color of their skin or their racial ethnicity or socioeconomic or sexual orientation or whatever it might be, or religious affiliation, is wrong. Because that's not right. That's not what humanity is about. Yeah. It's about being, in, in my mind, I've always raised my kids that kindness needs no education. You don't need to have a degree to be a kind person. And um, you've just got to work hard and you know, try and walk in somebody else's shoes and see what that's like.